Welcome to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Maves. And I'm Don Bishop. We're your hosts for Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. On this broadcast, we'll be featuring Denny Rickards, and he'll be answering your most important questions on fly fishing still waters for trophy trout. This show will be 90 minutes in length, and we're broadcasting live over the Internet. If you'd like to ask Denny a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com. Down below the description of the show that says click here to ask Denny your most important question. We'll receive your questions and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. This broadcast is being recorded and will be available for playback on our website about one hour after the show ends. If you have to leave early, you can return to our website at your convenience and listen to the broadcast at any time. Content of this broadcast is copyrighted and is the property of the Knowledge Group, Inc., doing businesses ask about fly fishing. Recordings or transcriptions of this show cannot be distributed or sold in any form. When we return, we'll be talking with Denny Rickards about fly fishing for trophy trout on still waters. The R.L. Winston Rod Company is the maker of the revolutionary Boron 2X, the first and only fly rods that are both delicate yet powerful and weigh up to one-third less than any others. Second-generation boron graphite composite allows us to build lighter, more responsive rods while maintaining outstanding fish-fighting power. Go to your local fly shop and ask to cast the Boron 2X, offered in 3 through 6 weight, and enter our Cast a Winston Sampler Contest. You could win six Winston rods. Visit www.winstonrods.com for contest details and to locate the nearest Winston dealer. Cast a Winston at the best place possible, your local specialty fly shop. Before we introduce Denny tonight, we'd like to let you know about the great gifts we have to give away tonight. Uh, for our drawing, Denny has been kind enough to provide autographed copies of his books, Fly Fishing the West's Best Trophy Lakes, and Tying Stillwater Patterns for Trophy Trout. These are both excellent books, and they're ones you're sure to want in your library. We will also be giving away a one-year subscription to Fly Fusion, a premier fly fishing magazine. So if you haven't registered yet for the drawing, you can do so now. Just go to our homepage, which is at askaboutflyfishing.com, and look for the link under Denny's section that says click here to register for our drawing. Click on that link and fill out the form. We'll announce the winners at the end of the show. Well, everyone who fishes still waters is in for a treat tonight, and oh goodness, these can be some kind of big fish to catch. Denny Rickards is with us tonight to tell us about his approach to fishing lakes for trophy trout, and this gentleman has some remarkable credentials. Not only has he caught trout weighing over 20 pounds, but he has fished over 400 lakes in preparation for his works on this subject. Denny started out guiding and fishing on Klamath Lake in Oregon over 30 years ago, and he's now on the water some 250 days a year. He's located in Fort Klamath, Oregon, where he owns Crystal Creek Angler. In addition to his mail-order business, he's co-owner of a production company, and his Stillwaters fly fishing schools and clinics take him to sites around the country and in Canada. He's a regular on the outdoor show circuit, and his flies receive wide acclaim, including outdoor magazines and Kushner's Fly Fishing Museum. In addition to his intensive study of the Stillwaters habitat, Denny has hosted Fly Fish Magazine on OLN TV. He's on the Cortland Pro staff, and he helps Diamondback Rods design rods specifically for Stillwaters. Denny's books include Fly Fishing Stillwaters for Trophy Trout, Tying Stillwater Patterns for Trophy Trout, and 
fly fishing the West's best trophy trout lakes. He has several videos out on the same subjects, including a series of three videos on tying fly patterns for stillwaters. All of these come highly recommended, and you will soon see why. My own fly fishing career started floating several lakes in Idaho and Nevada, and at that time I saw some big fish brought to the net, but unfortunately not by myself. After tonight, I'm planning to put my strategy together so, so, I, can, so I can go back to some of those lakes and nab some of those big fish myself. Well, we've got a whole raft of questions already waiting for you, Denny. Thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thank you, Don. Roger, it's really nice to be with you guys. I look forward to it. Well, it's going to be a, a very educational night, I'm sure. And, Denny, I, I know still waters can be quite intimidating for many fly fishers, so let's kind of open some doors tonight for our listeners into the, the exciting and challenging water that, that still water presents. And maybe we can just start out in, in, in more general terms about still water. Um, many people are very you know, like I said, intimidated. Where do we start when we're out there looking for, for trophy trout in uh, Stillwater Lakes? Well, when you talk about trophy trout, guys, what we're really talking about is if you want to catch big fish, you have to fish lakes that have big fish in them. Most lakes will hold big fish, and that's relative to the habitat, which means the food sources that are available. But when you go to a lake, <clears throat> especially with one that you're not familiar with, you got to remember where fish feed, and they always feed in shallow water or close to the surface. There's not a lot of time that I'll spend on a lake, at, at, at any rate, fishing deep. And I think this is a good one for everybody that's listening to put this one on your memory bank. And just remember this. When trout are deep, they're not feeding. You can go down to them and entice them to take, but basically they're not feeding when they're deep. They're there for another reason, oxygen, temperature, safety, whatever it is. When they are eating, then you need to work your shoreline areas. Now, there's some lakes, I'm sure you guys know, that are not conducive to work shoreline areas. Maybe you've got weeds extending out into the lake, so if you cast in along a shoreline edge, you may be 10 feet, 20 feet from shore, and it's relatively shallow, but where big fish or any trout hold in the lake, they're going to go where the food is, and it's always going to be found along your shoreline edges. And if the lake is shallow, nutrient-oriented, which means it's got a silted bottom, that means aquatic insects emerging up through the water, then you have to look not early but later in the day just below the surface because they'll tell you where they're at by just showing rings. And I think most of the guys that have fished out there already probably have experienced this. Uh, if you're on a lake that's shallow all the way across, you might see them out in the middle. But on most lakes, they're going to be close to the shore. And that's where I go when I start my pursuit of fish, and especially on a lake that I haven't fished before, is start on the edges first. Well, when, when you say uh, shallow, too, now, now some we could be looking at anywhere from huge reservoirs to uh, small farmer's ponds in many cases. Mm -hmm. um, what, what is shallow? What, what, what do we consider For me, shallow? you know, that's, that's a good point, too, Roger, because for me, shallow water is anything 10 feet or, or less, but for the most part, 6 feet or less. I rarely have to fish deeper than 8 to 10 feet, and most of the lines that I employ when I'm fishing those areas, uh, I don't go deep. I don't need to go deep because the fish that you want to catch is going to be in those shallow shoreline edges. So if I'm talking and you look at the taper, here's a good tip for the guys that aren't real experienced on lakes. 
just go to a, a whatever lake you're at and take a look at the taper or the drop. If the drop-off is very fast, in other words, and I learned this and tried to explain this when I was down in Argentina teaching those guides down there for the Bureau of Tourism for Argentina how to fish still water, a lot of the lakes we were looking at, 10 feet from shore, you're in 40 feet of water. It's just such a rapid drop-off, and that measurement tells me that's not a productive lake for big fish. There may be big fish there, but you don't have the area to fish. So if you go to your shoreline edges and come out and try to get an idea of how the taper begins. If you're not sure or you're not sure where the drop-offs are, let's say the water's off color, you can't see how clear it is, you can take your rod and stick it. In other words, stick the rod down on the water, unless you have a depth finder that'll tell you that. But I'll stick when I can't see bottom, and when I reach a point where I'm down eight, nine feet, that's pretty much where I'm going to stop. Now I'm going to turn around, I'm going to cast back in and fish those shallow edges that could be six inches, four inches, maybe it's a foot, whatever it is. Let's say you've got weeds that extend out three feet into the water, then those fish will cruise the weedy edges. But that's what I'm referring to when I'm talking about shallow water. It's usually not more than ten, but usually six feet or less. Well, Danny, we know that, uh, as Roger mentioned, there are so many different types of still waters, and, and maybe we ought to even just inquire, do still waters imply only bodies of water which have, uh, I guess, been impounded by nature or, or perhaps by, by man, mm -hmm. or can they include stretches of rivers or that sort of thing that have little, little motion? They can, Don, but I think usually when I see that, uh, and I would fish a water that has very slight current to it, what we have to do is separate uh, the difference between still and moving water. If the flow in that type of water is sufficient that forces the fish to face upstream, mm -hmm. because that's where the food will be coming from, then you fish it like a river. But if it's moving so slow, even though it's a river, but it's moving so slow, you can basically use the same tactics that you would employ on a lake and fish it that way, which means, for the most part, your fish are not necessarily facing upstream, and sure. the angle that you take to the fish, if he's feeding, all you have to do is try to determine which way he's going. So if he's up on top, it's easy. But if they're not showing and working off the top, now we've got to go down. And sometimes I'll go to a, a lake where there's an inlet coming in, I'm in the lake, but there's enough current coming into it, I may fish that like a stream. In other words, cast across it and let my line, not, as it's sinking, also drift across the current. But I've got to keep it tight, and I'll impart motion to my fly and try to determine how far back are the fish and how deep they are. Now, I know up in Canada, for example, a lot of the lakes have shoals scattered throughout them, and particularly the larger lakes. And you mentioned using a depth finder. Mm -hmm. how, how does one uh, use that, say, if you're, uh, uh, if you're not in a boat or that kind of thing? Well, you know, before we answer that question, Don, let's, I need to retract a little bit here and let listeners know, because I know a lot of guys are a little intimidated or confused, you know, how do I get started with this thing? When I, I just try, for the most part, and I avoid big, deep lakes. It's not how big they are that's so intimidating. It just takes you more time to cover the area that you want to cover. It's depth. Uh, if you're on a lake, that is what we call acidic. In the first chapter of my first book, I talked about this. And on acidic lakes, that means they're usually deep. 
the water's gin clear, there's no aquatic insects, the water's colder, and it's on a rock, sandy, rocky bottom. If you're on a lake that's relatively shallow, you may not know that, but if you walk down to the water's edge, just take a look and see what you've got in the way of, of bottom. And if you see silted bottom that, or weeds, then you know the lake is relatively shallow. It may have deep areas, but where you want to concentrate in that response is go to those areas where you think those fish might be holding, and if it's relatively shallow and not real deep, then you're going to probably find your fish along those edges. So. I don't know. Did I, I don't think I, did I answer your question? Well, yeah, yeah. I think that uh, that's a big help, and and like you say, uh, those big deep waters uh, oftentimes uh, are sterile, at least in the habitats that trout like to hang out. They are done, and I think for a lot of guys, uh, having a depth finder. When I use my depth finder, I'm really not looking for fish. If my depth finder, and I use a little buddy. Uh, if it's reading straight down, it tells me there's fish underneath me. Why would fish be underneath me if I'm in relatively shallow water? It tells you right off the bat they're not feeding. I'm not going to catch a fish by dropping a line straight underneath me. So I don't care about that fish. I'll use my side view finder, and it'll tell me there's a fish 30 feet over, 50 feet, 70 feet, whatever it might be. That just tells me where they're holding. And if they're on tight to shoreline edges, you're not going to read those fish. So. For me, what I'm really looking for when I'm doing a depth finder type thing, and I only use this on lakes that I'm unfamiliar with, that I haven't fished before, and I do a lot of those every year. Just to, it's, to me, it's a game. How fast can I figure it out? But anyway, when, when you're on water that you don't know, I'm looking for structure, and I'm looking for drop-offs. And let me say right now, for anybody that's getting started in this game, because uh, I get asked this question a lot, how do you, where do you start and all that? First thing I do is I'll look at the lake, and I'm going to look, as everybody that's fishing a lake should do, where are you going to put your cast? Where are you going to place it? If you're using a cast and retrieve type method, I'm going out from shore, and I'm going to stick it as I go out or use my depth finder and find out what the taper is. If I get 30, 40 feet and I'm under 10 feet, I will turn around and move parallel to the shore, casting in on a shoreline, and never placing the same cast in the same place. Uh, a lot of guys, they'll do that, and all of a sudden they'll be getting a lot of strikes, and they think they found the honey hole. But if you stop and do that, you're really retarding your, your learning curve because, yeah, there's fish there, but you know they're there. You can always come back to it. But what you don't know is maybe the spot around the corner or on down the beach could be better. So, And the time frame that you do this requires a lot of prime time, and the prime time in the summer months, not in the spring or fall necessarily, although it can be, but in the summer months you have a very narrow window in which to approach those fish that are feeding. They're not going to do that all day, and you're going to have to make adjustments later on, not only in pattern, maybe line, but certainly location. So uh, I just wanted to put that in there so that guys, when they're fishing like the most productive way that I have found to fish a lake is never out in the motor, out in the middle. I just don't go there unless the middle is shallow water. I'm going to work the shoreline edges first until that sun gets high enough, and when they lose their cover of darkness, they'll retreat more into the depths or out away from the edges because fish being, they're not real smart, but they know that that predator-prey relationship that they deal with every day, they're not going to leave themselves exposed to predators, so they'll move out where it's safety. And it's just an instinctive thing. Well, now, Denny, uh, another question had come in about topo maps. Are, are topo maps available? Are they helpful for 
on not the water? No. Okay. No, they're not. Uh, what you have to do, you got to do the homework. You can get maps of a lake that tell you where your springs are, where your inlets are, where the depths are. Uh, not every lake has them, but if those type of maps are available, I'm always looking for, here it is in the way I, I sequence it. When I walk down to the at water's edge, first I want to find out, are we dealing with acidic or are we dealing with a nutrient lake? That's the first thing I do when I get out of the car, if I don't know it already. Then I'm looking, where's the weedy areas, where's the shallow areas? I can work the shoreline edge all the way around the edge and stay in shallow water. But where are the weeds? Depending on the time of the year, and this is important, if a guy's fishing in the spring, most of your fish are they're going to be along the shoreline edges anyway because they're going to be after the big stuff. So I'm going to work those areas first. And if uh, when they leave and they go out, and it's let's say we're in the summer months, I'm looking for springs. I'm looking for any inlets. I'm looking for old stream bed channels if it's a reservoir. And if I don't find that, any time the guys are on a lake that they're unfamiliar with, find out where your shallow edges are and what is the taper, what's the drop-off. You may go out... 15, 20 feet, and then all of a sudden, instead of it being 4 or 5 feet, it drops off into 10, 12, 15 feet. That's a great holding area, not early. You don't want to fish that early. You want to be inside that along the shoreline edge casting in. But as the sun gets higher, that's where your fish are going. They rarely go out in the middle. Most of the water that we see on lakes don't contain fish. They're going to be on the shoreline edges, and when they retreat to deeper water, depending on what that drop-off is, They'll hold on those drop-off edges where they can ambush prey, and they'll use structure that's around them to conceal themselves. So that's basically how I approach it. Okay, well, maybe, and this kind of leads into another question, but um, when you talk about reservoirs, I suppose a good time to scout those is, is you know, when they're, when they're low to try to figure out structure so that when they come back up, you know where those, those reefs are or those... Um, Good point, those old Roger, river yeah. channels or, or things like that, I suppose. Mm -hmm. I've done that on many on many reservoirs that I've fished in the past that were close to home where I had the time where I could go up and observe that. Sometimes we get into drought years, and we just got out of one here in the west. I don't know if we're really out of it yet, but last year was a pretty wet year in some parts of the western states and not so much in other parts, but where reservoirs really got low, it, guys don't realize what they're buying in the way of valuable information if they can go. If it's a lake that they fish close to home and they're going to fish it fairly often, go out and note the structure, and if you have to, take some notes as to, oh, this, okay, rocky here, gravel. If the reservoir doesn't have an outlet, all of them do, but if, if they don't release a lot of water out of it, then the reservoir basically stays at the same level throughout the year, which means that the habitat can grow around to provide the food sources that uh, fish are going to eat. You'll see this a lot on private lakes, and there was one that I can think of in particular, Monster Lake out of Cody, Wyoming. They grew some just absolutely huge rainbows up there from the 10, 12, 15-pound range. And they had them in there for the first two, three years, but when those fish died, the other age groups coming behind them didn't get very big. And the reason they didn't get very big is because they started messing with the water table. And they would drop those water levels down because they used it for irrigation as well. And they they exposed all of the, the uh, weed beds. And, you know, if you're looking for big fish, there has to be two types, at least two types of food sources that get them that size. I'm not talking length. I'm talking about girth and how deep the bellies are. It comes from protein, and the protein means minnows, and it means scuds. Those two things, crustaceans of any kind, really, 
will put a lot of weight on a fish very, very quickly. And what makes it so easy is that they can feed on those things on a year-round basis. So when they drop these water levels, those uh, the minnows had no place to go because their cover was removed. The scuds had no place to go because their the biomass and protoplankton things that they ate was now eliminated. So they lost both of them, and they couldn't get fish much bigger than five, six pounds. So. When you're talking reservoirs, guys, you want to think more more or less of, yeah, if they get low, uh, take advantage of it. But here's another point about when the water recedes, because I deal with this in my home like here in Upper Klamath. When they start pulling water out of this thing, and I've seen some years it really got low, all it does is it just uh, concentrates your fish. In the spring, we're dealing with lakes that are high and cold, and that scatters fish. In the summer months, when you think it isn't really good, and the water gets warmer, it's going to concentrate them in the colder regions. So they're easier to find, and it makes it a lot easier fishing. And I do that on my home lake all the time because I know right where those fish are going to be, and I know when they're going to be there. So think about that in terms of uh, drawdowns and things like that. But for the most part, a reservoir, if it's got – and I really – I'm looking for where that stream bit channel is. You can use your depth finder to locate it, and you will usually find the fish down in those deeper regions, not when it's full – when it starts getting low, when they're forced to go into those deeper regions. Great. So, Denny, we'll take a real quick break here. When we return, we'll be talking more with Denny Rickards about fly fishing for trophy trout on still waters. Royal Gorge Anglers is a full-service fly shop on the Arkansas River in Canyon City, Colorado. They also provide both walk and wade and float fishing guide service on the Arkansas, South Platte, and several private high country ranches. They specialize in fly fishing education and work to assure that everyone taking a trip leaves being a better fly fisher. For the best service and the most fun in the Southern Rockies, visit the folks at Royal Gorge Anglers, the gateway to Southern Colorado. Located conveniently on US 50, only 45 minutes from Colorado Springs. For more information, visit their website at www.royalgorgeanglers.com. That's www.royalgorgeanglers.com. Or call 888-994-6743. That's 888-994-6743. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Denny Rickards about fly fishing for trophy trout on still waters. If you'd like to ask Denny a question, just go to our homepage, askaboutflyfishing.com, to the link below the description of the show that says click here to ask Denny your most important question. We'll receive your questions and try to answer as many as possible on the show tonight. Uh, Denny, could you uh, give us a little insight into your operation out uh, there in Oregon? Well, you know, I can. I do a mail-order business. I think you mentioned that earlier. And it's a list in my catalog, uh, Don, is basically the products that I use within my system. And so there's a lot of things that I don't carry in it because you can get them in any fly shop. But between the books and videos, the materials that we tie our flies with, the patterns themselves, and all the different things uh, from rods, leaders, tippets, which are so, so important on our presentation stuff, um, it's all in there, and that's what I do from a mail order standpoint. But I guide on Upper Klamath Lake, although this past year was the last year that I'm going to do it on a public basis, and just going to kind of retire from that, but I will continue to do uh, clinics and schools and fly clubs around the country and the shows. I'll be in Denver with the International Sportsman Expo in January and 
So I want to try to stay as visible uh, and helpful for guys that have problems or questions. And I can just say this, that I encourage anybody, if through the show tonight we don't get a question answered that you have in the back of your mind, we don't get, it doesn't come up, feel free, please, to call me any time in the evening. The only thing I'll tell you, if the Rams, Lakers, or Dodgers are playing, I'm going to answer after the game is over. But I'll be more than happy to try to help the guys. Well, that's terrific. Uh, can you give us your website address as well? Sure. Uh, website is, uh, let's see, FCA3. I'm sorry, that's email. Uh, flyfishingstillwaters.com is the web. And for email, and I'll tell you guys right now, I hate email. If a guy's got a question, I'd, I'd much prefer that they call because I'm gonna I'm gonna be asking them questions to try to help them to find out what they're doing and how they're doing it, and we can go so much faster on a phone call, which are really inexpensive, than I can by banging away in a typewriter. I'm working on this new book right now, and I don't want to tickle those ivories any more than I have to when it comes to you know typing stuff. But uh, I just encourage them to give me a call, and the number is five four one three eight one. 2218, and, uh, and if I'm not here for some reason, I will get back to them. I won't leave anybody hanging. So. And you're you're on the West Coast in the United States, so you're on yes. Pacific Coast time there for Correct. people. Uh, well, that's that's an incredible offer, Denny. We we sure appreciate you offering that up to to our folks. And um, mm-hmm. um, and I, I I saw you at the last ISE show out in Denver, and mm-hmm. um, and learned a lot because I watched you tie and you talked a lot. A lot of your your necks and so forth are dyed specific colors and. Uh, as I remember, to uh, uh, for a lot of the attractor patterns, and uh, are you still doing that uh, specific, specific? Oh yeah, specific that's dye? all. It's all part of what we sell on the catalog, and the reason that I put those in there, guys can go to any fly shop and buy necks and saddles, but the fellow that guided or dyed for me the colors that I use in my system. Jay Fair, he's in California, and he's now 82, and he's just sold his business to another business, uh, but they're going to continue to die and do that sort of thing because he's told them his secrets, and the guy has some secrets that, I mean, it should be locked up somewhere because most guys can come close to the colors, but he knows things that other people don't know, and when you're dying stuff, he gets colors that no one else can get. And when you're doing it, it has to do with how warm the water is, how warm the air is when you take them out and dry them, and how long you leave them in. And it's just amazing what he can do. But I put those in there because there's two basic colors when it comes to tying flies, and that's burgundy and burnt orange that I think are really, really critical. You'll have your blacks, your regular grizzlies, your olives, and other colors, which are all good. But somewhere before we're through tonight, we're going to talk about some flies and patterns and what fish see, and we need to talk about that as to what guys are trying to create when they're casting the fly or tying the fly. What are they really trying to do? I know what they're thinking, but uh, we need to discuss that one in a little more detail. Well, uh, Denny, let's, before we get into equipment and fly selection and, and mm-hmm. the tying, can you just briefly uh, float tubes, uh, pontoon mm-hmm. boats, that kind of watercraft that, that might sure. be applicable for, for still water or, or not? No, I, I'm very outspoken about that, and I guide out of a boat that's 17 feet long, has a 50-horsepower motor, and when a guy gets in the boat, he goes where I take him. When I park it and I put an anchor down, he fishes where I tell him, where I, where I stop it. 
and he makes his cast, and I can show him retrieves and all that, but I'm basically doing all that for him. When you're on a pontoon boat or a belly boat, what I can't do or what you can't do or anybody else can't do when they're in any other craft other than a pontoon or a belly boat, if you're in a canoe or a pram or a boat with a motor or whatever it is, you guys, every time you're working a shoreline, uh, if you, let's just say the most common mistake I think that guys make when they're on a lake is they don't move often enough. And so if you're in one of those boats, you must anchor so that you're not moving or drifting while you're retrieving. That's a major breakdown in your presentation. You can't do that. You want to. You don't want to be drifting downwind. It affects which way you cast. But when you're in a pontoon boat or a belly boat, at least the way I find it affected fish lakes, is I will move slowly along the shoreline, kicking parallel to the shore, casting in. The fish that you want to catch always move parallel when they're hunting for food and they're in shallow water. So that means your cast is going into them and you're bringing it out. No trout is going to pursue your fly out into deep water and break his normal path where he cruises. If he sees it and he's within, and your fly's within that lane, he'll take it right now. He isn't going to turn and follow it out. So how far you bring it out from a presentation standpoint is critical. So the boats, that if you're in a boat with a motor or anything that you have to anchor to hold it, you've just eliminated that mobility. Yes, you can sit and fish one spot, but after a while you'll find that all of a sudden you're not getting strikes anymore. So you know it's time to move. Sometimes that could be three, four casts away. So you've only made three or four. You caught a couple of fish. Now you're not getting anything. And I just know how guys go. They're going to get tired of lifting that anchor and putting it back down, so they don't do it. They just stay there, and they'll fish out in the deep water, which is not a good idea until the fish have moved out there. But anyway, I think the belly boat and the pontoon boat, if you're using fins and you can kick and you can move slowly, use your legs for your power, leaves your hands free to fish, and work into the shoreline edges first. If you're finding fish working out deeper than you and you see them close to the surface, fine, you can do that. You can turn around and cast the other way. But the big fish that guys want to catch are going to be in the shoreline edges first until they lose their cover, and then they're going deep, and you may not get another shot at them until evening. So in answer to your question, I guess, Don, I think probably for the most part I'm going to fish. Uh, I use a super cat, which is very easy, very light, very uh, comfortable, and very durable, and I just move along my shoreline edges, and I'm casting in. Guys that are in a belly boat can do the very same thing. The only difference is that they're not going to be as comfortable because they sit lower in the water, and they're a little more dangerous. The guys that have the big pontoons that have the rowing apparatus, unless you've got a physical handicap, I wouldn't recommend them because when the wind blows, you're going bye-bye, and you're subject to that wind. And to stop it, you have to put an anchor down, and then you've lost your mobility again. So you're either going to be rowing or you're going to be anchoring, but you're not going to be fishing nearly as much. And the time spent when you've got wavy action is critical time because that's when a lot of those big fish are going to come on the hunt. They'll leave the bottom. They'll come up when that surface is roiled, and it has a lot to do with the time of the day when it will be good. But I don't like the other crafts. I have to use it in my home lake because some of the better spots are 10, 15 minutes away on a boat going wide open that would take a guy kicking two, three hours to get there. So anyway, that's why I use the pontoon. Okay. Well, uh, you've told us what equipment you want to fish out of. Uh, a lot of people have inquired 
about the kind of equipment that you're mm -hmm. going to use uh, when you're going after these big guys. Mm -hmm. Well, I would tell you, first of all, if we talk about equipment, let's talk about the rod. Most rods will work. I don't think it's real critical, but when I'm talking to guys on the phone that are ordering stuff and they're ordering rods from me and we get into length, I use a nine-footer. The length of your rod is relative to what you like. There isn't a right or wrong, but the longer rods do give you more leverage to make a longer cast, and it allows you to do it easier so you can get more distance with less, well, let's just say muscle with the longer rods. But what they do lose is the delicacy and the control sometimes if you're trying to make shorter casts. And the time that you need to make the long cast with those rods is when the water is flat. Under a ripple surface, long casts are a lot of times not necessary. And when we talk about long, I'm talking about cast anywhere from 40 to 60 feet. There will be some occasions, and I talked about it in my first book, where you'll have to get out there 65, 70, maybe more than that, but that's really the isolated situation. Uh, and that's only when it's calm because you're trying to keep from spooking fish. For the most part, you can get by just fine with 40, 45, 50, 60 feet. The difference between a guy who casts short, and I can tell you probably 90% of the time, the guy who makes the longer cast, all of the things being equal is going to reach more fish than a guy who's casting shorter distances because you're going to show your fly to more fish. So in terms of length, I like a 9-footer. That's what I use. 5, 6, 7, whatever weight rod you like. I use a 6, 7 rod because the starter rods are offer you some advantages in cutting a wind, not into it and certainly not downwind, across the wind. When the wind blows, fish face into a wind if there's surface feeding going on. So they're going to be facing you. And if you're casting downwind, all you're doing is lining a lot of those fish. The minute your line hits the water, anything between your rod tip and the end of your line is going to spook fish, and they're not going to be there. Watch what a lot of inexperienced guys will do, and even experienced guys will do this. Once the fly hits, they'll start retrieving, and they're bringing that fly back to that zone where there aren't any fish. They were there, but they aren't there now. And when your line hit the water, you just moved them. So there's no point in that. But if you cast across the wind, so if you're in a pontoon or belly boat and the wind is from your back blowing downwind, if you cast over your left shoulder, if you're right-handed, you're showing profile to that fish. So he's going to see the, fish, the fly moving across his side of vision because he's facing upwind. And that gives you a huge advantage. So I want a stouter rod. You can get by with your four weights, five weights, but I think a four weight is something I would use more for dry flies, on streams and rivers, maybe small nymphs. Not something I'd use on likes. Five, six, I have some occasions where I'll use a five, six. I used it for many years, got by, but we get in some awfully big fish. And a five, six, it'll do the job for you, but it's going to take you longer, and you don't have the muscle that you need when the wind blows. And that's another of the big advantages to using a little starter rod. So from that standpoint, that's about rods. Reels I don't find real critical. A lot of guys like to uh, put the fish on the reel. I, I don't. I find that a disadvantage. I would rather strip the fish in, same way I'm retrieving. I have more control over what's going on by stripping. But, and maybe we need to, I'll just touch on it, but we need to get more into this detail on this one before we're through tonight. It has to do with fly lines. The most important part of anybody's arsenal from a presentation standpoint is the fly line. It's not the fly. It's not how well you cast, although you've got to get the fly to the fish. 
has nothing to do with the retrieves. It's your ability to maintain your fly at or above the level of the fish at all times. You must do that on every single cast. And if you don't, you're violating that basic rule that you can never, ever allow the fly to get below the fish because fish don't tip down the feet. They're always looking up. So you must maintain that zone at or above the fish at all times. So example, if you're out on a lake and let's say the fish are cruising two, three, four feet down and you put your fly up there, you've got two, three, four feet to play in. If the fish is cruising at two feet and showing rings uh, on occasion, you don't have much room in reference to retrieve speed or fly selection in order to keep the fly in that tight zone up above. Sometimes we're talking four or five inches. So when you're casting to a feeding fish, if you don't get that hit right away, you don't keep retrieving because you've dropped below him because he's in that top five, six inches of water. If it's a bigger fish and he's down about a foot or so and you know that, that's okay, but you've only got about a foot. So how long does it take you on a retrieve before your fly drops 12 inches? Once I think I've reached that point, I pick up and recast. So most of the time when I'm casting to a feeding fish, I never retrieve more than five or six feet. So the line that I'm going to use in order to make that happen, we have a lot of options, and we can go into those a little later when we get into fly lines. But I'll just tell you the fly line, and let me just say this right now, because this is critical for a lot of the guys that don't know. There is so much confusion as to what is an intermediate line. An intermediate line means a sink rate of one and a quarter to 1.3 uh, or 1.75 inches per second. That means that in, uh, if you wanted to count the 10, you will drop approximately a foot. Most of the clear lines that are on the market today are type twos. They are not intermediates in spite of what the manufacturer says. And how you'll find it out, just go put them in the water. They cannot match the formula that the Cortland line companies come up with their camel line, and that's what I use. I use a camel intermediate. It's a clear line, offers me advantage on clear days, not ruffled days, not dark days. It's when the sun is out and the water's flat. Then clear lines do not reflect sunlight like a cutter line might. So when it comes to clear lines, the only true intermediate line on the market is the Cortland inter or camo intermediate. That's the only one. There are all the other lines by all the other manufacturers, in spite of what they claim, sink faster, two to two and a half inches, because they all have mono cores in them. And they don't want to tell you that, but it's true. So anyway, I just, uh, I'll use that. So when it comes to leaders and tippets, and let's get into that real quick, I, I just tell guys what I do. You, they can do what they want, but most of the fishing I'll do, I'll start with a nine foot, one or two X leader. Off of that, I'm going to run three feet of fluorocarbon. And that fluorocarbon, because it absorbs light, it does not reflect light like monofilament does. So guys say, well, why don't you just use a full uh, fluorocarbon leader? Because they're too wiry. They're too uh, coily in cold weather. So I use the monofilament leader, which is a little softer, don't have uh, the memory. And I'll add the, the fluorocarbon to it, and I always fish at least 12 feet. I don't want to be under that with at least three to four feet of fluorocarbon on the end. So, And I'll go with two. Once in a while, I'll get down to 3X, but I fish mostly 2X because I know it's not relative to the size of the, of the leader. I know fish see it, but they don't spook from it because it doesn't reflect light. But with that, and we should make this note as well, you have to use a loop knot 
try to fly to the tippet. That allows the fly to move back and forth freely. If we use an improved clinch knot, it cinches down and you lose that movement. So the whole key that every fly fisherman that's fishing still waters, what you're trying to accomplish when you put the fly in the water is to get the trout's attention. So one, you've got to put it in water where they're at, and two, you've got to move the fly in a manner that makes it look like food, not a particular insect, but food. And how you attract their attention, it comes from motion, movement. And the motion and movement is, comes from how you tie it, how you retrieve it, and then not use to tie it to your tippet. So just that from a tackle standpoint, uh, it's a long roundabout way of answering your question, um, but that's basically what we do. Great. That's a big help. And that was, that was 12 feet total of leader and tippet as a minimum, correct? Yes, and where we draw the line on that, if a guy has a trouble, and a lot of guys do have trouble turning over, and I ask them all the time when I'm guiding guys, how long a leader do you normally use? And they'll say nine feet. I found out a long time ago, and for you guys listening out there, just do this little test for yourself. Tie on whatever fly you want, not a dry, but a nymph, bugger, leech, whatever. Make a cast with a nine-foot leader and watch how hard the fly hits the water. That disturbs and scares fish. Add three feet to it and watch how softly it drops. And the reason the difference is there is because no one adjusts their casts for three extra feet of leader. Now, if you went to 15 feet, it may tend to pile up on the end, and that's because you're trying to turn over a longer tippet, but not really. And if you want to correct that, just hold your back cast for a second longer for the line to tighten up behind you then make your forward cast, and you'll find it'll turn over. And the rule of thumb is this. Turn or cast whatever you can comfortably turn over. Don't fight it. And when the wind blows, the long leaders, as we all know, get tougher and tougher to cast and turn over. So uh, unless you're a really good caster, I think if you can turn over 10, you can turn over 12. And I know if you can turn over 9, you can turn over 12. There's not much of an adjustment that has to be made. So, uh, But I would tell you, when the conditions are tough, and we're talking about high, clear sky, water that's flat, no ripple, with conditions such that the water's really clear. Those are the worst conditions you're going to face on a lake. So your time frame and when you're going to deal with those fish has got to come early and late when the sun is not on the water. That, that gives you a break as well as the fish. So anyway, those, those are some of the things we look at. Yeah, great tips. Well, let's take a brief break, and when we return, we'll be answering more of your questions about flies and strategies. Flats Times Charters is your sponsor for this segment of our show. Captain Bob Jaspers of Flats Time Charters will introduce you to Mosquito Lagoon, Indian River, and the no-motor zone of the Banana River on the east coast of central Florida. Only a short drive from Orlando, you can sight fish for big redfish, spotted sea trout, and black drum, as well as a seasonal snook and tarpon. Captain Bob is a lifetime resident of the area, and this shows in his knowledge of the local fish, flora, and fauna. Call Flats Time Charters now and arrange for your next memorable adventure. You can reach Captain Bob Jaspers at 321-631-4051. That's 321-631-4051. Or go to his website at flatstime.com. That's F-L-A-T-S-T-I-M-E dot com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Denny Rickards about fly fishing for trophy trout on still waters. If you'd like to ask Denny a question, just go to our homepage, askaboutflyfishing.com, below the description of the show where it says, click here to ask Denny your most important question. 
We'll receive your questions, and we'll try to answer as many as possible on the show tonight. Well, flies. That's everybody's big interest. We've got a host of questions about <laughs> flies, Denny. Um, let's just start off with a question from George in uh, Bismarck, North Dakota, about uh, uh, what patterns you like, and he specifically wonders about leech patterns and darker-colored flies, and we'll want to get into your philosophy about uh, uh, representation of flies as well. But let's just uh, answer George's question to start. I think for the most part, uh, George, if you're listening, um, the time that I use leeches, buggers, that sort of thing, is always relative to the conditions and time of year. Uh, early in the year, you don't have aquatic insects out, so you're not going to have to imitate a lot of small stuff. So early in the season, leeches, buggers, minnows are really the best flies. And for the most part, you may be able to get by with them all day. If there's any hatches, and the only one that you may see real early would be your midges, you might want to imitate that either in a dry or, or a nymph. But I'm going to use the darker patterns when the sun is off the water or it's a dark day, or the water's off color for some reason. It could be off color from inlet, uh, inlets coming in that are a little high, really, whatever, or maybe the nutrients in the lake haven't settled yet, and so you don't have real clear visibility. We deal with that on my home lake. But I'm going to use the buggers and leeches for the most part, and here's my rule of thumb. I can use those flies any time during the year if I fish them real early and real late. Sometimes I may not go to them late because we get those those uh, hatches in the evening. I may switch to a minnow toward the evening, but leeches are always suggestive flattering patterns because they give you lots of movement and motion, and that's what strikes the interest of your fish. And buggers, the very same thing. Sometimes they imitate probably the same thing to a fish, maybe just something that looks edible. But I use the darker patterns, again, early and late in the day, and I'm going to use the big stuff early and late in the season, or if it's during the summer months, I'll use that, and I usually stop taking it off, and you don't have to wonder when to change. The fish will tell you. You'll stop getting strikes, and you're going to wonder what's going on, and it's just because they either switching, they know what's going on in the water because of the water temperature. It tells them, oh, there's hatches coming on, so they're going to get prepared for that, or they leave the area where you're fishing because no longer, it's no longer safe to be there. They'll drop off in a little more depth, and you'll have to wait and make, just wait for them to come back on a bite, which they'll do. But if you watch throughout a day, and I think we've all experienced this, <clears throat> excuse me, the bite goes on and off throughout a day. Fish don't sit there and feed consistently all day long. Small ones maybe, but not your big boys. They're going to feed basically real early, real late, and you won't have much of a shot at them during the midday, midday hours unless it is spring and fall. You can reach them then, and they'll be a little more susceptible. But as we get into the warmer weather that comes in the summer months, a lot of those fish will go down where you can't get to them. Even if you could get to them, they're not going to take until they want to go and hunt for food again. And when they do it, again, they're going to come to you. You don't have to go to them. And that means back into the shallow water areas. So answer your question, at least for George, uh, dark stuff on dark days. And it's just a rule of thumb. You can get by with other bright colors if you want. But I use the brighter stuff when the sun is on the water and the dark stuff early. And I'll fish uh, those leeches and buggers and that sort of thing early and late in the day, and if it's spring and fall and you don't have a lot of aquatic insects out on the water, you can probably get by with them all day. It's not always the best fly, but it's something that usually is pretty consistent in getting strikes. Danny, tell us uh, your philosophy when you're, when you're tying flies uh, for, for use in still waters. Uh, what is it that you're going to be representing with, with your flies as a rule? 
Well, you know, that's really, I'm going to say something that's probably going to make guys want to sit up and wonder what I'm smoking or drinking up here, you know, and think, God, is he really serious about this? But let me say, when whenever we tie our fly on, if you're not a fly tire, what are you trying to recreate? What are you trying to imitate? <clears throat> In our mind, I think we're trying to think of, I want this fly to represent what the fish see and eat every day. When we tie a fly, there's two trains of thought here, and one is to create an imitation of the insect, simulates the motion movements of the, of the insect, or we can get into direct uh, imitation where we're trying to clone it to the natural. We lean in that direction more with our dry flies, but it's not a good idea when you tie something that you're going to fish below the surface. So when we put the fly in the water, and I ask this question of a lot of guys a lot of times when I'm at shows and things, and I've got an audience out there, and I'll go along in the front row, and I'll ask them, I said, you know, when you tie your fly on, do you really believe that you're creating or imitating what trout see and eat every day? And I watch their eyes kind of think about that, and it's about 50-50, half say yes and half say no. Well, let me just say this. We cannot, we cannot imitate what they see and eat every day. And one of the questions that I'll ask them then, you know, and I think of the listeners out there, you guys think back when you were in your spinning days, or maybe you still do it. Uh, when you're thinking of a spinning lure, like a MEPS or a Panther Martin or a Rooster Tail, where they have blades turning, do you guys ever see anything moving up and down the streams or rivers with blades turning in front of their heads? No, but no. yet they work. We catch a lot of fish with it. When we use, and I know most of the guys out there use beadhead flies. Everybody, that's the rage right now. Everybody figures you've got to have a beadhead. Well, if you're fishing streams and rivers, beadheads can certainly offer you the advantage of getting your fly to the bottom quickly. On a lake, I never use a beadhead. And some of the more prominent, effective stillwater fishermen that I know won't use them either. And the reason for it is because the bead at the front of the fly drops in an unnatural manner. It makes the fly nose down too quickly. So when I'm tying my flies, I'm using weight underneath the body, and that weight allows me, when I pause in my retrieve, for the head to tip, not drop. When I pull forward again, it comes back up. So depending on the speed, length, and timing of my retrieve, I can make my fly undulate as it comes through the water, which is very, very suggestive. Now when it comes to direct imitation, again, we're talking about dry flies, but in nymphs and streams, uh, well, let's take the streams out. Let's just talk still water. When you guys put your fly in the water, the first thing you must do, and as I mentioned earlier, you must be in the zone that the fish are at. So you've got to keep it at or above the level of those fish. When it comes to how they're going to see that thing, if, they, if there isn't a bead on it and we don't have blades turning in front of it, a lot of us like to use flash boo and attractor things that uh, we think enhance it. It can enhance it. It makes it easier to see in off-colored water but too much of it will actually spook fish rather than attract them. And besides, if you look at any damsel or dragonfly them coming out, they don't have flash boo hanging off their backs. So what I'm saying is that most of what we do to enhance in our minds our fly to make it more suggestive is not doing that at all. If you want to catch fish, then you need to remember this one basic thing that cannot be denied. And in the new book that I'm working on right now, I've, I've done a lot on trout behavior how they react to Mother Nature's moods, and what we need to do in order to get them to accept our presentation of our flies. 
we know that when fish see food, if they think it's food, when you're flying it's the water, if he thinks it's food, there's no hesitation. He takes it right now. But if a fish follows your fly and doesn't take, doesn't accept it, then what he's telling you is that he's curious. It may be food or it may be something else. He's not really quite sure what it is, so he follows. The only chance you have on that particular cast of getting that fish to take is to change your speeds and your retrieve. You can speed it up or you can totally stop and let it drop. One of the two, he'll either react and take it or he won't do anything. He'll go back to where he came from. If he continues to follow, the next step for you and the last step is when you get to the end of your retrieve, you will change angles. If you're using a full sinking line, you move in parallel through the water. As you get to the end of the retrieve, it's going to come up to your rod tip. When you change that angle, that will cause him to react. So what I'm trying to say to you guys is when it comes to tying a fly or fishing a fly, what you really lean heavily on is your ability to create and make the fly move and act like a living organism. And so the more movement you get out of it, that's why rabbit's fur and marabou is so effective because it breathes and pulsates. So every time I design a fly, and I'm working on three new ones right now, is to get that type of movement. And I want the most suggestive fly that I can put in the water. It's not a matter of matching the hatch. I've done clinics where guys will say, and there will be a damsel hatch coming off, and the guys were all out there using damsels, and they're just tearing fish up right and left. And I had one guy come up to me and say, Can I, you mind if I see what color damsel you're fishing? And I said, sure. And I showed it to him. He said, well, that's not a damsel. That's a black leech. I said, I know. He said, well, how come you aren't fishing a, a, a damsel pattern? I said, I just wanted to prove that they would take something else when they're feeding. So when they're feeding, if the fly acts like something lifelike, you've got to remember that fish feed opportunistically most of the time, not selectively opportunistically. But when they get selective, it means there's an abundance and availability of a particular insect. And they'll key maybe on that for an hour, maybe two. But they won't do it all day. And you won't see it on the, on the water that much. When a fish goes to shallow water, he doesn't look for a particular insect. He looks for food. So anything that you have that is suggestive, meaning it has a lot of breathing, moving parts, don't worry what the fish take it for. If it's a leech, fine. If it's a, a bugger, whatever it might be, it could be imitating a lot of different food organisms. And even if it doesn't imitate any particular food organism in that lake and he still takes it, why did he take it? He took it because it looked like something to eat and it's lifelike. And so then we get into the color side of things. And that's another whole ball game. We all know color is important, guys, but let me just say this about color. When you select the color of the fly you want to fish, you will already learn through trial and error that colors have a predominant, in other words, you'll have some colors that you know work better than other colors. Well, that's relative to the time of the day more than anything else. But I have my favorite colors. Burgundy and burnt orange are big, huge for me. Olive, another one that I like. Black, another one. You may use all that stuff, but the color that you use, when a fish sees your fly, now consider this. The sun is overhead, it's 10 o'clock in the morning, you made your cast on the water, the fish is cruising four feet down. Your fly hits the water and it's dropped two feet down. The fish is below it and he's looking up and he sees your fly. What is he seeing? He's seeing silhouette. He is not seeing color because the light up above is showing him the black side or the dark side of your fly. He doesn't see color at that point, he only sees silhouette. 
So color's not important. Now, if you make the same cast to another fish on your next one, and he's coming up behind it, he's parallel to it. Now he sees color and detail very well. But what is key in his interest is how the fly is moving and breathing in the water. When you use small nymphs that don't give you a lot of motion and movement, when fish go through a water just like they were when they were in a hatchery when they were young, the guy walks down the middle and he's throwing pellets in the water and boom, 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 pellets are all gone within seconds. They get programmed in the feeding. That is competition feeding that does not take place when we fish out on, on our open waters and public waters. So when you guys are out there, a fish has got all day to inspect. So as long as your fly is above him and he sees that fly, he has no reason to believe that the next thing that enters his vision is a phony. But he's programmed. He's been sucking in bugs all morning. So all of a sudden, here's your fly, and he reacts. He sucks it in because it looked normal. Maybe it's not what he was eating, but it could look like food. Well, by the time you feel that and you set the hook, it's too late for him. He's made the mistake, and that's why we get him to react. So the big key about tying flies or fishing flies is to always make your fly look suggestive. I don't care what it imitates. As long as it's moving, breathing, fish will tell you if they don't like it. It could be a color thing. It could be the size. It could be anything. And I think size, a lot of guys will ask me that question, too. You know, do you get by, uh, what sizes do you like to use? And buggers and leeches and that sort of thing. I fish mostly eights. I don't fish very many tens or sixes, mostly eights. And on the small stuff, I fish anywhere from 10 to a 14. I don't use much smaller than a 14 or much larger than a size 10 on the nymphs. And the time that I use the small stuff is when I see rings on the water. That's when I have to go to the small stuff. If I don't see fish working, you're on a lake and you don't see any activity going on out there, then you know they're down. The question is how far down. That's what you got. That's one of the things you got to find out right off the bat is how far down those fish are. Where are you going to put the cast? How far down are the fish? When you know those two things, it'll tell you line, pattern, retrieve, and so on and so forth. Well, Denny, we did uh, get a question from uh, David and Eugene Warwick. Kind of, kind of um, tells your story here. He says, Mr. Richards, my top, he said Richard Rickards, <laughs> my top uh, producing uh, Stillwater fly is the AP Emerger, which is your pattern, Denny's all purpose emerger. And I use it for swimming, emerging caddis, emerging midges, emerging mayflies, dragonfly nymphs, etc., along with crippled versions of the aforementioned insects. So right there, uh, and you know, he says he loves his, your book and so forth. His question is actually about, uh, you know, what um, what sizes you tie that AP emerger in. And uh, but it sounds like he's having great success, whatever he's doing anyway. On the AP Emerger, I'll just tell the audience this right now. It is one of the deadliest flies ever designed. I had no idea in the world, Roger, that it was going to be as effective as it's turned out to be. But I basically looked at three of the best flies that I knew of at the time, and I took something that I liked out of each three to create that fly. And when I do it, I tie it in a tan or gray color, olive color, or black. The only time that I'll basically use black is if there's dark insects av available to the fish or the time of the day or the water conditions. And I usually start with an olive unless there's calabatus coming off, which are going to be gray. So then I'll go to the gray one. I only fish it in a 10 or a 12. I don't use any other sizes. But I've had other guys tell me they use 14, 16s, and that's great. Sometimes we need to get down smaller. And I'll just say this, sometimes in the fall, you don't even have to wait for the fall. I don't know why it is, but it's true. 
big brown trout prefer small stuff, and big stuff will smoke them. When you can get by with the big stuff over browns is just before dark. Then size is irrelevant. You know, that old saying, you know, big flies for big fish, doesn't really hold true, I think, a lot of the time. It's just a matter of matching something, and I've seen this when I my spinning days. I used to troll lures over at Pyramid Lake, and we were working the shoreline edges with countdown Rapalas that were about, oh, it was called a CD7, countdown 7. And I thought, we were hooking some big fish, some 8, 10, 12, 14-pound fish. And I thought, well, if I'm getting fish this size, I'm going to a bigger lure. Maybe I'll get bigger ones. And my bite just absolutely came to a screeching halt where the other guy stayed with the lure, and he continued to catch fish. It wasn't until I went back to the size I'd been using before I started getting back into it. So in that case, they did not want the bigger fly. They wanted something that was more similar to what they're used to seeing. And I think we have to follow that same line of thinking when we're fly fishing. You can always get by, and if there is a rule of thumb to follow, it would be in the fall. Most insects get smaller into the fall, or conditions get tougher where the water's flat, clear, and I think sometimes we have to get longer leaders and smaller flies. But remember this, the most important thing for everybody when they're fishing lakes is to match their presentation to the conditions that exist. And I can go into that on another question, but sometime before we close this off tonight, guys, I need to tell everybody about the conditions and how it affects the fish's behavior and that sort of thing. But well, that's the uh, question I think that. Yeah, let's, uh, Denny, we could take a quick break here, and when we come back, let's get right into that and talk about okay. the, those conditions. The Pierre Marquette River Lodge is a full-service, Orvis-endorsed, Lodge, fly shop, and guide service located on the banks of the historic Pierre Marquette River in Baldwin, Michigan. They provide year-round lodging for the business or pleasure traveler as well as a full-service fly shop and guided trips for steelhead, salmon, or large resident brown trout. For more information, visit at www.pmlodge.com. That's www.pmlodge.com or call 231-745-3972. We hope to see you soon. Well, Denny, just a, a quick note, um, because I know we're going to kind of go away from flies here. We are getting down to the final minutes. We want to talk mm -hmm. about presentation and conditions and so forth. But mm -hmm. I want to let everybody know that uh, Denny's books have uh, great photography and instructions on tying his flies as well as his catalog. He has a full-color catalog, so you might want to call him and get his catalog, and it shows his patterns as well as the, you know, the materials that he uses specifically for those. But uh, they are uh, a bit you know, off the beaten track from what you're normally going to see. I can say from, from tying them and seeing them myself, uh, and, and, of course, that's due to, to his success as well. But, uh, so, anyway, little little plug for you there, Denny. But uh, it, was help, it was helpful for me to see your materials because it made a big difference uh, mm -hmm. to me when I, was, uh, when I was looking at your flies. Well, let's talk about those conditions you, you wanted to get into. This is really, really critical because it's what I do every single day before I get on the water. For guys just starting or you guys that are out there on the water constantly, what you need to do, your first priority is to find a fish. Second priority is how far down they are. But you're going to face conditions, and fish always react to their habitat and conditions that affect that habitat. So I'm looking at five basic conditions that you're going to face as well, and you're going to face them throughout the day, 
You're going to face them no matter where you go, and they're never going to stay the same. They're going to constantly change. First one has to do with the skylight itself. Are we dealing with a dark day or a bright day? If it's dark, it just means the fish are going to hang closer to the surface. If it's a bright day, it's going to push them down deeper. That affects line choice, pattern choice, retrieve, where you're going to cast, so on and so forth. Second condition is the water itself. Is it flat or is it rippled? Trout like rippled water because it gives them protection, cover. We like it because we can make mistakes and get away with it. If the water's flat, there's no margin for error. So you've got to look at that situation, and it's going to change throughout the day. Third condition has to do with the water as far as clarity. Is it clear or is it off-colored? The worst condition you're going to face is a high sun, clear day, flat water that's gin clear. Those are tough conditions to fish under. I don't care where you fish. The problem is you can't get your fly in front of the fish without spooking them. So if you've got water that's a little off-color, doesn't have to be real bad, but a little off-color, you have an advantage. If you have clear water but you got ripple, that gives you the cover as well as the fish, and you will see that they'll feed under it. Fourth condition has to do with water temperature. Everything a fish does, what he eats, when he eats, where he goes, how fast he digests his food, what he spawns, it's all geared to water temperature. And so you need to know, and I just use as a rule of thumb, anything below 50 degrees, I've got to start slowing my retrieves down. If it's above 50 but under 68, I can get by with using faster retrieves and the fish would be more aggressive and so on and so forth. They pick their time when they eat in warmer water, which is usually going to be early and late in the day and not so much midday. But if your temperatures are on the cool side, slow everything down. You don't have to go at first light. Go more midday. When the water's warmer, they'll be more active. Fifth condition, and you can't mess this one up, guys. You've got to know it. Know the depth of the water you're fishing at all times. If you don't know how deep the water is underneath you, then you don't know what fly line to use. If there's no fish working, you don't know how far down they are. So I make it easy by casting in along the shoreline edges, never fishing deeper than 10, so, 10 feet, so I can get by with a couple of line choices. So those are conditions you face every single day. And from those conditions, it will tell you what line, what flies, where to fish, what speed to pull them, how deep you need to be. It answers all your tackle questions in a lot of your presentation things that you do are going to be affected by that. But because those conditions don't stay the same, sun comes up, sun goes down, water heats up, water cools down, water's flat, then it's rippled. The fish are in shallow water, they're in deep water. They, they just keep changing. It's, it's cold in the morning, then it warms up, you know, that sort of thing. So we're always having to make adjustments. The fish make them automatically. We just have to know how those conditions affect their behavior. Now let's throw in things that you can, and none of these you can control. Let's take the full moons. Full moons are tough periods for me. I don't. I won't even guide people when there's a full moon. And what I've found in charting this for the last 26 years, I don't fish the day before, day of, or two days after full moon. There will be exceptions to it, but I would say 90% of the time you're not going to do well, and you're not going to do well in the hours you like to fish. You can do things at night and offset some of that, but basically a full moon is not good. Now let's take falling barometers, storm front coming in. It isn't the change in pressure that affects the fish behavior. It's merely an indicator that the weather's going to change, and that's what they don't like. Change is part of what we do every day when we fish. It's not so much the change that affects them so bad. It's the rate of it. The faster the change occurs, the worse it's going to be for you. Third thing has to do with lake turnover. When a lake turns over, all that acidic stuff that's on the bottom, that bacteria that breaks down those weeds, this Mother Nature's way of preparing for the new in the spring, will come up. 
and the water will have a tannic, kind of a coffee stain type look to it. Go find something else to do. Paint the chicken house, you know, put decals on the back of your bicycle, whatever you want to do, but I wouldn't go fishing because you're not going to do well unless you can find another lake to fish because that lake is not going to fish well for you unless there's an inlet where you've got fresh water coming in that will push it out because you're going to find a lot of fish there. So at lake turnover, not a good time to be on a lake. And there's other things. North wind. Before you go further, can Mm -hmm. you define uh, lake turnover? What do you mean lake, by lake turnover, turnover only occurs, for the most part, in lakes that are deep enough to stratify. In my first book, it tells you and explains to you what happens and its impact. In the new book that I'm writing right now, Roger, it's going to cover uh, a lot of these things, full moons and all of that stuff. And it's really, the whole book is predicated on how fish behavior is affected by this stuff. And if the guy who's fishing doesn't know how the fish is going to react to this stuff, then he's he's out there blind. He doesn't know where to cast. He doesn't know what flies, what retrieves. And what he's hoping for is to get a, a response from the fish. I take all of that out of my day. I don't want that to be part of the equation. I want to know if this is going to happen. Oh, okay. Then I know they're going to be in shallow water or they're going to be in deep water. Or where they're going to go and how they're going to react. Okay, I'm going to have to slow my retrieve down. So when a lake turns over, the water is very acidic. It's almost... Uh, it, it could kill fish if it didn't clear it, but Mother Nature provides us with a way, and she brings up the wind and that sort of thing, and it just dilutes all this. And then fish will go where they can get uh, better oxygen, and so you have to look at those aspects and how it affects their behavior, and that's the main thing. And when you understand how these conditions affect us, and they're going to change throughout the day, then we mean, need to make a change. And I'll just say this. Most guys, when they're out there and they're struggling, they always change the fly first. And most of the time, it's not the fly, it's how you're presenting it. And presentation includes everything you do, from lines, to leaders, to tippets, to colors, to retrieves, to locations, to depths. Everything you do is tied into presentation. And so when you're thinking about how the fish is going to react, if you know uh, on a normal day where you don't have to deal with any of these uh, external factors that really turn them off of their bite, then you'll know where to go. And so, and I'm going to add a couple more to that. An east or north wind, not good. Fish don't like it. Sudden change in the water temperature itself is not good. Uh, sudden drawdowns where the water comes down real quick is not good. Worse than that is when lakes fill in the spring. If the water in a particular lake you're fishing was really low last fall and it's come up 15, 20 feet, that's really going to scatter your fish. And along your shorelines, what you're dealing with now is water that is covering old gravel. There's no weeds there that the fish can use for food and protection because it wasn't there last fall. It's going to grow later on in the year, but it's not there now. So spring fishing on a lake that's just filled is tough fishing. I try to avoid those. Anyway, that's just a point I wanted to make that I thought would help the guys. Sure. Well, we have uh, questions from a number of people, including Tim in Colorado and, mm-hmm. and one from Georgia, uh, about... Things like using dry dropper or tandem nymphs, mm-hmm. uh, what are your strategies along those lines? I'm the wrong guy to ask on that one. I use one fly. I don't use two. And the reason I don't, i got enough to worry about with one. When you use two flies, if they are different, some guys, and I can see that, I can say this, if a guy's using a dry as his top and a nymph, whatever it might be underneath, they can use the dry as an indicator. But if you're talking about throwing, say, a leech on one, I don't care if it's the front fly or the back fly, and a smaller fly, 
one of them has to be pulled slow, and one of them has to be pulled so that it pulsates. When we're using, say, buggers and leeches, those flies have to pulsate in the water, so you have to increase your retrieve speed to make them pulsate. And if you're doing that, what is that little fly doing? That isn't the way what it imitates. That isn't the way that insect swims. So I just get away from that. So I can't really tell the guys, but I know it's popular with a lot of people. They like to try two flies and see what the fish want. But when you retrieve it, one is in sync and one is out. So I just don't see the advantage to it. But, you know, it's different on streaming rivers. You can use two. And sometimes on lakes, you'll, you know, they'll take one or the other. So if a guy likes to do it, it's not a matter of right or wrong. It's what they enjoy doing. If they want to do it, let them go for it. Well, Denny, um, I had an experience on uh, my father's. He's got a kind of a farmer's pond on some property up there that uh, I fish quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And um, this summer I was working all night and having just a heck of a time trying to hook into anything. And right before dusk I, I caught a really nice fish. But I caught it on um, when I finally figured it out is, is there were caddis coming off this, this lake, and uh, I caught it on a, um, you know, a pupa that was hanging below a dry. So, And I didn't know really how to fish that um, because like you say with movement and so forth other than put it out there and then just kind of just finger roll it along but but you know basically I was fishing the, the, the pupa which I had no other way to, to fish it in my mind other than what I was doing do you, do you have any hints on, on that? Let me say this about pupa if you look at the four stages of the insect he's larva when he's on the bottom when he merges up to the water he's in motion when he reaches the surface film, it's mostly the pupa stage that we're imitating, and then they emerge up into the dry on top. When trout feed on pupa, you will know it because you will see a dorsal fin and a tail fin. That's not the rise that you're going to see when they're taking adults. If they're taking adults off the top, you rarely see the fish. You just see the ring, and they suck the bug underneath. But if you see that tail and dorsal, if you guys watch for it, you're going to see it on just about every lake you go to. If there's emerging insects, you'll see the tail and dorsal rises. They're telling you to take on a pupa. Okay, the pupa's hanging in the film. When you use that underneath the dry, depending on what the distance is between the two, you're really suspending the fly at a level and doing nothing with it. And so your presentation in that form was perfect. What do we do when I fish a pupa? I'm casting and I'm retrieving it. So I'm always moving the fly. That is not what the insect that they're eating is doing. Mm-hmm. I'm moving and imitating an insect that's lying still. But yet we can catch fish doing that. And the key to it is to keep the fly at or above the level of the fish. So I have to make a line change. I didn't mention it earlier, but I use a 7-foot clear tip that I designed. I hate to say it, but they won't find it in stores. I'm the only one that has it because Cortland builds it for me. But it's a floating line with 7 feet of camo intermediate. keeps my fly high for a much longer period of time. It's a great line for streams and rivers, for nymphing. But when I see them taking pupa, that's my go-to line. I don't use a camo anymore because if I see the fish working and I retrieve, I have to increase my retrieve speed to keep it up higher, longer, and sometimes they don't want things moving fast when they're picking off things that are just sitting there for them. So I use that 7-foot clear tip line for that. Well, you described exactly what was happening. These fish came in to within, I would say, 3 feet of the shoreline. They, they weren't mm-hmm. in more than a foot of water, and I was seeing a lot of backs and fins and so forth. So mm-hmm. that's what I finally figured out is what was going on. But um, So I wasn't all wrong there, I guess. It's Credit <laughs> yourself for the good presentation there. Probably. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk about the, the uh, presentation a bit more. Um, uh, when you are retrieving these, these flies that are they're imitating, you know, 
live whatever. They're, they're attractor mm -hmm. patterns, imitating mm -hmm. motion. What, mm -hmm. How do you present those and retrieve those? I think the two basic retrieves, and we don't have to get into, I think guys get too hung up on retrieves. Speed is critical. There's three parts to a retrieve. It's the distance you pull it, it's the speed you pull it, and the pause between. And when you're using big attractor patterns, you've got to look at water temperature. And I mentioned it earlier, if it's under 50, you're going to have to slow your pulls down. But I'll use long, foot long, and go slow. The fish will tell you what speed they like. I'm fishing water here now close to me that's, oh, 42, 43. And those fish are really starting to slow down now. So I have to go midday, and I have to use slow pulls, even though I'm using bugger-style flies. I'm not using the small stuff. But I'll cast it in along the shoreline. I'll count maybe five, ten seconds, get down about a foot, and start my pull, and almost all my strikes are coming within the first four or five feet of the retrieve. I'm getting very few back into the retrieve, except for when I change angles and come up to my rod tip. Sometimes they'll take on an upward swing. What that means is that the fish is looking at something that's emerging. So the only two angles you need to worry about is parallel or up to the water table. And on an angle. So I think for the most part, uh, if, if guys are confused and not sure about retrieve speeds, what they should use, if it's small stuff, use a four to six inch relatively slow pull with that stuff. You can cheat to stay higher longer, especially if the water's warmer, but the fish will tell you if they like what you're doing. It's more how you present it that you don't spook them when you're casting to them. But even when I see rings and I'm casting sight fishing, I never retrieve more than five or six feet. If I don't get the hit, I'll use that seven-foot clear tip line, and I can pick up anywhere in the retrieve and recast. I cannot do that with a camel because the whole line's underneath the water, and I've got to bring it all the way in before I can cast back out. So I'm losing time, prime time. That's critical. Well, that's uh, that almost uh, brings us to a question from Robert Semero down in uh, California. He's talking about some water that you're familiar with, Danny. He fished uh, Sugar Creek Ranch uh, mm -hmm. recently. Mm -hmm. And he was uh, doing pretty well on the four to five pounders, but he was having real trouble enticing those eight to ten pounders that he mm -hmm. was there for. Uh, what uh, kind of recommendation could you give him? Tough. I was just there, and those fish are, uh, those big fish, they've seen everything that uh, guys can throw, and they've been seeing it all summer long. So big fish in that particular water, they really key on very, very, very small stuff in your summer and early fall periods. You'll get the other ones to take it, but those fish have probably been hooked before at one time or another, so they're a lot smarter. But what they're really looking at and what he's dealing with is a presentation problem. It's not a matter. There's no magic fly necessarily that's going to do it. It's how he presents it. So. When I was there, there were guys getting down into 20s, 22s, and uh, some of them were hooking some of those big fish, but they couldn't land them because they were straightening hooks or breaking them off because they were having to use the small tippets. That's a tough one. Uh, I think you find that more on private water. You probably won't have to deal with that one on, on a public lake where the big fish are hunting. In that case where I know those big fish, which I'm dealing with right now with a brown trout this time of year, I'm, I fish lakes where there's no inlets, and I know those browns are going to come to the shoreline. Uh, they're going to be where the gravel is. The females will stay out in deeper waters. They get ready to spawn. The males are in looking for the places to spawn. So they're all along the shoreline. And if you're out casting in, I've never found presentation of the fly or which pattern I use is real critical. They'll take a lot of stuff. It's just how you 
present it to them, and how you move it is what tells them yes or no. And if you don't have the right conditions, even under those circumstances, you probably aren't going to get a response from them. So you've got to have some chop, wind, or darkness. Well, that kind of uh, puts the old uh, big fly, big fish uh, down the drain, doesn't it? Uh, to some degree, they'll I mean, take the big stuff in the spring, but not in the fall as well. Not in the fall when things get tight a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Can we? Uh, we <laughs> as you predicted, Denny. Uh, you know, we, we're not getting to all these questions, and we apologize to <laughs> folks. <laughs> but uh, you warned us that uh, that would be the case. So we we may have to do this again sometime. But um, let's talk because there were a couple questions about playing the fish. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, you work all, you work really hard to get this big fish on this eight, nine, ten pounder. Uh, what recommendations can you give on, uh, once you hook up and how to play these fish? Well, if you're into big fish and you know he's a big guy, the worst thing you can do is challenge him early in the fight. If you can get past the set, that's why I use 2x fluorocarbon a lot. I don't break fish off anymore. And I don't miss very many fish, and I hook just as many as I did 10, 15 years ago because it's fluorocarbon. But if you can get past the set and the fish takes off, don't challenge the fish. Put some pressure on him. I don't do it with a reel. I do it with my rod hand like I'm retrieving, and I'll pinch my fingers down against the line against the rod butt handle. And I won't stop him, but I'll make him earn what he takes Either off the the floor, if I or off my stripping apron, when he takes if he takes that and then he's starting to get into backing, I may want to get back to the point I started and I'll retrieve off the reel until I get into that point. But when you get the fish in close, got to remember they're going to get skittish when you try to bring them to the top or you get them in along the shoreline edge. And um, most guys that I know that fish and I, this question comes up a lot. <clears throat> I'm just going to throw it in real quick. Fishing a lake from shore is the worst thing you can do far better to be in a boat casting back in than being where the fish want to be in casting out because you spook too many. But let's say you're playing that fish now and you're getting him in close. Expect and anticipate him to take off and make a run. If you try to stop him, you lose. You'll lose most of the time. So you've got to give him his head. Usually when you see him starting to come up toward the surface and he stays up there, you've really won the battle. When you put your net in the water, always net your fish head first. You can't sneak up behind them. They have one gear, and it's not reversed. They go forward only. If you have your net in front, he's got to go into it. But it's when you put it in there, you've got to make sure that he's ready to be netted. And I don't mean playing him for 20 minutes. You can put pressure on him. Colder the water, the faster they wear down. So it's just a matter of, and it's kind of an instinctive thing. You'll know when he's done. Just don't be in a hurry. He can't beat you if he can take line. And you won't lose him if you just don't make mistakes at that point. Well, it sounds like that 2x tippet uh, is, is making a lot of difference. Uh, a lot of people fishing streams are fishing 6x and so forth, and that there's a big difference there. Don't need it. Yeah. You don't need 6x, 5x, 4x. The only time I would make exceptions, and I would go down to 3x, I won't use anything under 3x on lakes anywhere. I just don't find that I need to, and I don't lose fish because of it. There's times when guys say, well, how heavy a tippet will you go? What if you're going to put on a size 22 fly? I don't use 22s either. I just don't find it's it's tough enough to get the thing through the eye of the fly, but that's what I use as a rule of thumb. If I can't get my leader through the eye, then the leader's too big, and you'll have to taper down. But here is one thing that you do have to consider. If the water's flat, those worst conditions I told you about, presentation of your fly becomes critical, and you may have to extend it and go lighter to keep from spooking fish. 
Danny, uh, we have a question from Dean in Seattle who mm -hmm. actually seems to be having some trouble with the hook set that you mentioned. Do you have any tips uh, how to best uh, stick that fish? Well, you know, yeah. Uh, I would tell him he needs to do a couple of things. One, always when you're retrieving your fly, make sure your tip is in the water so there's no slack. If you raise your rod tip out of the water, even if it's only a couple of feet, that creates slack. The fish has to remove the slack before you're going to feel it. You can't move your fly back to you until you, re until you remove it as well. So when he feels the, the, the take, and this is just what I do. I don't know if it's right or wrong or whatever other, other people like to do, but I'll hit him pretty good. I'll set my hook pretty good. I need to drive it in. I'm not one of these guys who just lifts the rod real soft. You know, sometimes I've been accused of, God, you'll break their neck. You hit them so hard. But, yeah, I, I'm, I'm aggressive because a lot of my retrieves are very, very slow. And when a fish eats, he doesn't attack his food. He sucks it in. He'll attack a minnow because he's got to kill it first. He'll attack something coming up through the water because to him it's escaping or emerging. So they'll react more aggressively to that sort of thing. But if I'm just pulling parallel across and I feel that line tighten up, and I suspect that that's a take. I'm gonna I'm gonna set pretty hard, and I think if you're going further out and you're going deeper, you got a lot of line in the water. The more line you have, the more stretch there is to it, and you're gonna miss strikes. There's no two ways around it. You're just gonna miss strikes unless you can keep it short and tight. When I say short, usually if you're casting 50, 60 feet or less. If you're going longer than that, then it's all relative. The more line you have in the water, the more stretch there's going to be. And so if you're not tight, you're going to miss fish. Well, Denny, unfortunately, it's time for us to wrap things up here. And um, But when we return, we're going to uh, do the drawing for both your books. So people have okay. the opportunity, you know, the two winners tonight, which would be great. And then we're also going to give away a year's subscription to Fly Fusion Magazine. So everybody stay tuned to see if you win. Fly Shop with full service located in Boulder, Colorado, provides premium tackle and comprehensive instruction and guide services to fly fishers across the country. In business for over 25 years and with a staff that averages 20 years of experience that will give you the straight story on gear, places to fish, flies, and techniques. They also publish a monthly newsletter that is one of the most informative and insightful electronic magazines in the industry. Find out more about this premier shop by logging on to their website at www.frontrangeanglers.com. That's www.frontrangeanglers.com. From our events calendar tonight, we see there's an event planned by the Madison Gallatin Chapter of Trout Unlimited in Bozeman, Montana. On Wednesday, November 8th at 6 p.m., they will hold a chili cook-off, uh, which will be followed by a presentation by Chad Olson on fly fishing the greater Yellowstone area. Go to the events calendar under Montana for further information, and be sure to tell them you heard about it on Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. And remember, list any fly fishing-related events yourself on our events calendar. Each show, we will select one event to highlight. And don't forget to remind your local clubs and fly shops to list their fly fishing-related happenings on the events calendar. Well, just a quick reminder to everyone, before you leave our website tonight, please take a minute and give us your feedback about the show. You can find a link on our homepage, just in the section uh, uh, for Denny Rickards, uh, and it says, what did you think of the show? Just click on that, fill out the form, and leave your comments. We'd sure appreciate it. Well, now it's time to give away autographed copies of Denny's books, Fly Fishing the West Best Trophy Lakes, and Tying Stillwater Patterns. So we'll do a drawing, Denny, here for the first one, Fly Fishing the West Best Trophy Lakes. 
and I'm going to press our magic button, and uh, the winners are randomly selected for the database that we have uh, from the show's registration. So if you didn't register for the drawing for tonight's show, it's a little late now, but uh, make sure you do so for the next show, and then you won't miss out on any chances at some of these incredible gifts we have to offer. So here we go. I'm going to pick the first winner for the first book, and the winner is Paige Olson. Paige Olson. That name rings a bell. I wonder if Paige has been a winner before. <laughs> I think, kind of think so. Okay, so Paige won the book for Fly Fishing the West Best Trophy Lakes. That'll get her out west and out of Wisconsin, right? And uh, we'll pick the next winner here. And for the tying Stillwater Patterns is going to be Ken Gallant. Ken Gallant in British Columbia, Canada. All right. So uh, I know they're going to enjoy those books because I've sure enjoyed mine. So um, congratulations, folks. And then one more winner here for a year's subscription to Fly Fusion Magazine, and that is going to be Ken Kaufman in California. Ken Kaufman in California. So we'll, uh, folks, we'll reach you after the show and get your mailing information, and we'll pass that on to Denny and, uh, and Fly Fusion and get your gifts to you. So congratulations, everyone. Well, we know they'll enjoy those. Uh, Denny, I can't tell you how much we appreciate you being with us tonight. I'm sorry, it went so quick, guys. Pardon? Sorry? I'm sorry, it went so quick. <laughs> exactly. I'll tell you, the time just flew. And, you know, you answered questions that ranged from the Netherlands to British Columbia to uh, throughout the United States. Uh, and I, I want to tell you that uh, we really appreciate your taking uh, time to share your secrets about fly fishing for these guys in the still waters, and I think you've loaded my guns for the for the big fish in those uh, Idaho lakes. Uh, I really hope that you can join us again in the future, and we can uh, get after a, a, a big section of those uh, questions that we were unable to answer. I would really look forward to that, guys. It was a real pleasure to be on the show, and uh, hopefully it was helpful for the guys. And again, if they're still listening and they don't know. They can always give me a call. We can go through some details with them, or they can contact you, and you can forward them on, and uh, I'll try to reach them by phone. Denny, thank you very much for, for making that generous offer. On our next broadcast, which will be on November 15th at 7 p.m. Mountain Time and 9 p.m. Eastern Time, uh, we will be interviewing Mike McClellan, and our topic for the show will be fly fishing for trophy trout in New Zealand. Mike has been fishing and arranging fly fishing trips to New Zealand for the past 16 years. Here's a chance to ask whatever you need to know about hooking up with one of those elusive New Zealand browns. We would like to thank the R.L. Winston Rod Company, Royal Gorge Anglers, Flats Time Charters, Pier Marquette River Lodge, and the Front Range Anglers for sponsoring our show tonight. Don't forget to visit our website, askaboutflyfishing.com, and make sure you're signed up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. That's it. Good night, everyone, and good fishing.